Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. I'm going to have Sandra come up for the scripture reading today. And if you can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 24, if you'd like to join along. We should not be like Cain, who, on the, who was of the evil one and murdered the brother. And why did he murder him? Because he, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteousness. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that he that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whoever, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit in whom he has given us. The reading of the word. Well, good morning. Thank you for reading. Uh, we will, uh, yeah, we'll get right into that text. Let's pray, ask for God's help with it, and then we'll look at it together. There's a lot in there, as you probably picked up from reading, from hearing it. Lord, we look to you this morning. We are so grateful to be your people, your sons and your daughters, as we learned at the end of last week's passage and pick up on now this morning. Uh, it is a, a, a joyous privilege to be, uh, to be your children. And we would ask now, as your children, that you would teach us. You are our Father, and we pray that you would instruct us here from Scripture. May the Holy Spirit, who lives within all, all of us who are uh, who are regenerated, who are born again, may that Holy Spirit guide us now as we look at this text together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Every family has some rules, uh, basic rules that the parents pass down to the children. It's kind of a, a thing. And a lot of times, you know, there, there's some variety from one family to the next, but a lot of times there's, you know, similarity in those different rules. Uh, for example, most families have a rule that the kids should brush their teeth every day, right? Brush your teeth every day. Most families have that rule. It's a good, a good thing to do. Always brush your teeth. Uh, another one is always bring a jacket, right? At least if you grew up in the North like I did. Uh, you always bring a jacket with you. Even if you think you're not going to need it, you might need it. So always bring a jacket. Uh, always wear clean underwear in case you get in an accident. You ever hear that one? 
Yeah, our, our moms used to tell us that one, right? Always wear clean underwear. That's a rule a lot of families have. Uh, our dads used to tell us always carry some cash. Always carry some cash <clears throat> in case they won't take a credit card, right? And I don't know if that's as much of an issue today, although I still think it's good advice. I told my boys and my daughter, uh, always have a little bit of cash with you in case, in case you need it. Uh, never let the gas tank run lower than a quarter. Now, I know some of you don't follow that one, but uh, I think that's a good rule. Never let the gas tank run lower than a quarter. Well, you, you get the point. No matter who you are, what your families are, families are very different, but there's, there's some basic rules, basic rules that families follow. I start there because that's where John starts. That's how this morning's passage begins. Verse 11 gives us a basic rule. It's a basic rule for the Christian family. Uh, he says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Uh, this is basic, he says, right? That's how he starts. You, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. This is a basic message. Now, the, the verse there, where that same wording, he actually has used it already when he says, this is the, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. <clears throat> he used that, that wording back in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 24. You remember we looked at that a few weeks ago, what you heard from the beginning, the message you've heard from the beginning. And back in chapter 2, he didn't tell us what that message actually was. He kind of left us in a little bit of suspense. But now he tells us, there's no suspense now, verse 11, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the basic message, he says. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is one of the, follower, this is one of the family rules. You are to love one another. And he does connect it to the family. That's, uh, that word. He begins actually with the word for. He says, for this is the message. For is going to make us look at what came immediately before that. And what became immediately before was verse 10, where verse 10 tells us that God's children, so there was this contrast in verse 10. If you've got your Bible open, you can see it. Uh, there's this contrast between the children of the devil and the children of God. And God's children, he said in verse 10, do two things. They practice righteousness which he's talked about earlier already, and he'll come back to it later. But the other thing God's children do is they love their brothers. God's children love their brothers. And what he's going to do now in today's passage is he's going to focus in on that. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. This is one of our family rules. God commands his children to love one another. So we're going to look at that commandment today, and uh, we're, just to be clear, I, I think everybody knows this, but just so we understand, we're, we're talking about our spiritual brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm sure it applies to siblings too, it's a good verse for that, but, uh, but he's talking here about our spiritual brothers and sisters. So as we talk about love this morning, yeah, a lot of what we say applies to everybody, and you know, love your enemies, Jesus told us, and, and a lot of these principles would apply there, but really this text is focused on this right here. It's focused on the community of believers. It's focused on the family of God. And so that's what we're focusing on this morning. God commands his children to love one another. We're going to look at this from two angles. Uh, first, I want to show you, I think this is interesting in this text, and I give credit here to uh, Warren Wearsby, who's a pastor from a generation or two ago, wrote a little book on this, and on this book on 1 John, and, and he pointed out these four ways, four ways human beings relate to each other. I thought it was really kind of insightful, and it helps us set the context for the whole passage. So I want to take you through four ways human beings relate to each other, and I will tell you right up front that the first three are bad. The first three are wrong. You don't want the first three. Uh, the only good one on this, this list is the fourth one, which is why we'll spend most of our time on the fourth one. So we'll go relatively quick through the first three, and then we'll spend most of our time on the fourth one, and I want to show you five basic facts, five basic facts about the kind of love 
God commands us to love one another with. And so that's what we'll, we'll be doing for the time we have this morning. So do open your Bibles if you didn't, or open up that Bible app if you're an app person. And uh, let's, let's look at this text together and look at these. So we'll start with the four ways, four ways human beings relate to each other. And, and I won't make the, I'm not arguing this morning, these are the only ways people relate. There are others we could pull in from other places, but these, these are basic ones, four basic ways people relate. Uh, the first one is murder. John goes there. The first one is murder. He starts on the extreme end of the spectrum. Uh, verse 12 talks about murder. Uh, he says, uh, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. Talking about Cain. Cain's own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. So John actually takes us, he, start, he gives us this command, love one another, and then he takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, all the way back to the book of Genesis. It's uh, Cain's story, the story of Cain and Abel is told in Genesis chapter 4. And uh, just to refresh your memory, Cain and Abel were brothers, and they were uh, that first generation, they were both sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain, at the basic gist of the story is Cain murdered his brother Abel. And the reason you might remember is he was jealous. Cain was jealous of Abel. Um, they actually were both doing something good. So this is, the, you know, this is one of the reasons I think John goes to this story. Uh, they were doing what we're doing. They were doing what his readers were doing. They were worshiping. Cain and Abel were both worshiping. They both brought offerings to the Lord. And the Lord was not pleased. We won't go into the details, but uh, the Lord was not pleased with Cain's offering, but he was pleased with Abel's. And so he commends Abel's and he says, Cain, you need to... You need to correct that and do it right the next time. And instead of correcting it and doing it right the next time, Cain gets angry. He becomes jealous. He gets angry at God. And he gets angry at Abel. He gets Abel alone out in a field and he kills him. He murders his own brother. And that, John reminds us, has been part of the human experience ever since. Ever since. It's a real part of the world human beings live in in every single generation, including today. Even today, humans still kill each other with mortifying regularity. Right? We haven't outmoderned, we haven't outgrown this one. We still kill each other. There's still genocide, there's still war, there's still terrorism, and yes, there's still murder. Person-on-person -person murder. It's not just a thing on television. Uh, I was just curious how many murders happen in our own country. And uh, the, the numbers weren't closed yet for last year, but for the year before, in 2020, according to the FBI, there were 21,570 homicides. 21,570 homicides in 2020, and they were certain it was going to be a higher number just because of uh, pandemic stress and other things going on. It was going to be a higher number in 2021. And that's just homicides. That's not including all the other kind of man-on-man, person-on-person violence that goes on, the assaults, the fights, the riots, the sexual assaults, the abuse, all the rest of it. Uh, violence. Violence is part of our story. And it's evil, John says. It's evil, right? There's no, no, no uh, going soft on this one. Uh, Cain murdered his brother because he was of the evil one. So murder is, is straight from the devil, he says. Cain uh, was one of those children of the devil that verse 10 talked about. If you look back at verse 10, children of God, children of the devil. Cain was a child of the devil. That's the, the connection he's making. And so he, he says, love one another, verse 10, or verse 11, and then he says, don't be like Cain. 
Don't do what Cain did. And, and you, you would think we wouldn't need that warning, but we do, right? Even God's people need that warning. So guard your heart. Don't get carried away with bitterness or jealousy or anger or whatever it might be and end up hurt, killing somebody. Don't do that. The second one is hatred. Uh, the second way people relate to each other is, is hatred. Uh, people don't always commit actual physical murder, but they'll still hate. They'll hate with a seething uh, seething sort of hatred. And, and this is the one he talks about in verses 13 uh, through 15. Uh, picking up in verse 13, he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world, uh, that the world hates you. Uh, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. But everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So look at this word, the world. This is key for this. Uh, when John says the world, just to remind you, he's talking about the world system. And we actually covered this a few weeks ago. In, uh, I think it was chapter 2. Uh, when John, in this book, when John talks about the world, he doesn't mean the planet. He doesn't mean the people, like he does in John 3.16, God so loved the world. That's the people. Here, he's talking about the world system that is in rebellion, that stands in rebellion against God. So when he says, the world hates you, that's what he's talking about. The, the world, the system, hates believers. That's, that's the default. Just expect to run into that, he says. Every once in a while, there may be cultures, there may be seasons when the hatred isn't quite so strong. Maybe there's even some, some grudging respect. I could show you times in church history when that happened. But generally speaking, the world hates the church. The world hates God's people. Why? Because we reject the world. So, right, if they don't hate us, actually, we should be a little worried because they hate us because we reject that world system. That's what we were told to do back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world. Do not love that world system or the things that belong to it because it's not for you. It's not your system. So don't be surprised, John says. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Of course the world hates you. It's just part of the deal. More importantly, so here's the thing. This isn't a persecution text. He's not telling them how to get ready for, for persecution, although like, the issue obviously is there. But really, more importantly, his point is don't stoop to their level. Don't stoop to their level. So don't be surprised when the world hates you, and don't hate each other. Right? It's bad enough the, world, the world's going to hate you. Don't make it worse by hating, your, by hating each other. That's his message there in those three verses. He actually says as much in verse 15. If Christians hate each other, we're not acting like Christians. We're operating, in fact, in the same unloving category as the murderers. He says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You're back there with Cain. So no hating. No hating. So he's adding here to the warning for us. Don't uh, so he says, don't love, you know, or he says, do love, <laughs> do love one another, verse 11. But before he's going to spell that out, he's kind of warning us off of what, what not to do instead. And so don't be like Cain, don't be a murderer, don't be like the world, don't be a hater. Uh, by the way, just let me just, uh, this is almost parenthetical, but sometimes this issue gets confused for folks. Uh, that does not mean, verse 15 does not mean that hate is the same as murder. Sometimes we, we get a little sloppy with this, and we say hate and murder are the same. Hate and murder are different things, right? They're not the same thing. And if you have any doubts about that, just ask whether you, want, whether you would rather somebody hate you or murder you, right? I mean, they're not the same thing. Uh, the consequences are vastly different between the two. But they are equivalent. They are equivalent in the sense that, this is the case John's making, they're both sinful, they're both sinful because they are both a defiant rejection of how God wants us to love, how he wants us to live, and how he wants us to treat one another. 
They're both a defiant rejection of the Lord's way. And so in that sense, they're equivalent. If you're going to hate, you're, you're in the same boat as far as that goes as the murderer. So don't murder and don't hate. Those are, those are the first two. The third way people relate to each other is indifference. Indifference, cold indifference. And this one here, this third one, this one is probably the biggest danger for most of us. And I say that because now we're not talking about physically attacking, killing somebody. Most of us, hopefully none of us, are going to do that. Uh, Most of us are not going to do that. Uh, And we're not even talking about kind of hating other people. We we understand we shouldn't do that. Uh, But now we're just talking about not caring just not caring. That, that's what's at issue here. And you see it in verse, uh, verses 16 and 17, especially 17, but we'll read them both. Uh, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We'll come back to that verse. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? So, uh, Verse 16 brings us back to the thesis of verse 11. Uh, Instead of hating or murdering, we should love. So that's verse 16. And like I say, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But first, let's let's deal with verse 17 because he sets verse 17 up as a contrast with verse 16. Uh, So verse 16 says, here's what you should do. Verse 17 says, instead of that, (laughs) do this instead of that. So verse 17 is what we shouldn't do. And what he describes in verse 17 is what I'm calling uh, cold indifference. Cold indifference. And he's very specific in his description here. Right? So sometimes we, we heap a false guilt on ourselves because we, we, uh, we think we should be doing something we shouldn't be doing. He's very specific in what he's talking about here. This, kind of, this indifference, this apathy is another word I could use, uh, involves three things. First, we're able to help. We, we could do something. We, we have the means to help somebody. Uh, if anyone has the world's deeds, he says. Uh, number two, we see the need. So we're able to help and we see the need. So we're not talking about some far off need in some other part of the world we've never heard of, don't know anything about. There's, not, you know, there's not, no connection there. We don't know anything about it. Uh, he's talking about something we see. So if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. And then third, here's what makes it apathetic. Here's what makes it indifference. We choose not to care. We, we, we willingly turn away. And that's how he phrases it. He uses an active verb. If anyone has the world's good, sees his, brothers in need, sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart, closes his heart against him. If that's how we respond, if that's our response to somebody's need, he says, God's love, the love I just told you to do in verse 16, God's love does not live in us. We're just being indifferent to that person. You know, sometimes we, we think about love, the opposite of love, we'll say, is hate. And, and you know, it, it's true, the opposite of love is, is hate. But in verse 17, John would add to that, John would say the opposite of love is apathy. The, the opposite of love is, is just not caring uh, in this context. And so that's, a, that's another one, and, and that's another way human beings relate to each other. It's a big one. It's, like I said, I think it's maybe the default, especially in, as you get more people, and, and it's very easy to just kind of say, I, I just don't care. I just don't care. That brings us to the, the fourth way this text describes for us. And uh, like I said before, this is the one we're supposed to do. Uh, and the fourth one is love, or to be a little more specific, practical Christian love. I want to spell that out because I... I feel like it captures what John's describing here. So, so don't kill one another, don't hate one another, don't ignore one another. Instead, love one another 
with practical Christian love. This is what he comes back to now in verse 18. And so he actually circles back to where he started, verse 11. I think verse 18 amplifies uh, verse 11. Uh, He says, little children, here we are, family words again, little children, he's talking to us, little children, members of the family, let us not love in word or talk. The the word translated talk there, I think it's an interesting word. Uh, It's literally the word tongue. So in your words or your tongue. And so there's this focus on just kind of what comes out here, right? What just comes out. Uh, Let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed, in actions, there's your practical part of my definition, and in truth, there's the Christian part. He's He's connecting us. We've talked about how knowing the right things about Jesus and believing the right things about Jesus is one of the themes of this book. That's the Christian part. So we love, we are to love in deed and in truth, he says. So don't just talk about it, do it. That's, that's verse 18. Love one another with practical Christian love. That's how we relate. That's how the children of God relate to each other in God's family. Now the rest of the passage, the parts we haven't looked at yet, simply dig into that. They, they just explore that for us, and so that's how I want to use the, the rest of our time. I want to show you five uh, basic facts, five basic facts about practical Christian love. So we've kind of, here it is in front of us now, and we're going to look at it from five different angles that John helps us explore in the, in the passage in front of us this morning. So here they are, five uh, basic facts about practical Christian love. Number one, practical Christian love shows that we are actually born again. It's actually presented to us as evidence. Our love for one another functions as evidence for our salvation. So it doesn't save us. We're saved by grace through faith alone. That's the core of the gospel. Our, our, our loving one another doesn't save us, but it shows that we're saved. Jesus talked about it as, as fruit uh, in the gospel of John and in other places. It's fruit. It shows that we belong to him. John says this in verse 14. So we can look back at verse 14. I read it before, but I'll read just that verse now. Verse 14, we know that we have passed... So this is contra the world. The world hates you, but we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. So the world hates Christians, verse 13, right? That world system that hates God hates us, but we love them, right? The world hates God's people, but... Verse 14, we love God's people. And that shows something, he says. It shows we're part of the family. It shows we belong to the family. Or as John puts it, it shows, he uses fancier words, but he says, it shows we've passed out of death into life. He's just describing the born-again experience, right? What we describe as being born again. Because when he says life, he means spiritual life. We've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. I know that because of verse 15 when he talks about eternal life. No murderer, which he's just equated with as someone who hates his brother, no one who hates his brother has eternal life in him. But those of us who love one another, we, we do have eternal life in us. And so practical Christian love, according to John, is it, it's evidence. We start there. Our love for one another as Christians shows that we belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus said as much. Right? John's just building on things Jesus said. Uh, that's why he's one of Jesus' disciples, not making up his own stuff. Right? J- J- Jesus said it. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 35. Uh, one of my, I love this verse. A lot of you love it too. Jesus said, By this, all people will know you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. Right? It's one of the key signs Jesus said. By this, the world will know that you belong to me. It's if you love one another. And so a lot of things we could say about that, but one of them is that this flows out of his love in us. Right? It's, it's his love in us that does this, which means as we, we, we talk about how this plays out in the, in the next few points here, uh, we don't do it out of our own resources. So there's not this sense in which kind of, you know, we, 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 we screw it up really hard and we just make ourselves love each other. Uh, the, the whole idea here, the whole premise is that we are born again. So we're new creatures in Christ, it says, Paul says. And because we are new creatures, we can do new things. And one of those new things we can do is we can love one another because it's not our own frail human love now that's driving this. It's his love that lives within us. It's his Holy Spirit who lives within us. He's actually going to mention the Holy Spirit in verse 24, and that'll carry us into next week's passage. And so we, as we're talking about loving one another, we're not doing this out of the resources of our own feeble human love. We're doing this out of the resources of his new creation love, his love that is within us. So that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, second basic fact, is that uh, practical Christian love imitates Christ's love for us. So it imitates Christ's love for us. And now this is where it gets specific. Uh, here's, here's the thing about love. Uh, the danger with, with talking about loving one another is that we might make the mistakes of, mistake of thinking we just get to define what that means. Right? And that's, that's what, the, you know, that's what that, that rebellious world system does a lot of times. Right? The, the world says, well, we just get to decide what love is. We get to define love any way we want to define it. Uh, that is not how it works with, uh, with truth. It's not how it works with God. With God, God is the one who defines for us. God who is love, we'll get to that in chapter 4, God who is love, he's the one who gets to tell us what love looks like. And according to love, love looks, excuse me, according to God, love looks like sacrifice. According to God, love is sacrifice. He says so in verse 16. I said we'd come back to verse 16. Uh, here we are. He says, by this we know love. I, I wish the ESV would put a colon there, because they ought to. By this we know love, colon, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So here's what, here's what love looks like, John says. It's Jesus. Look at Jesus. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's love. So when I tell you I love one another, John says, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Jesus did. Lay down your, your lives for one another. Jesus willingly gave his life for us, dying our death in our place on the cross. He, he laid down his life for us. Uh, Lots of passages in the Bible talk about this. One of the most beautiful, in my opinion, is in Isaiah. It's an Old Testament text. Isaiah 53 describes this exchange, this laying down of his life for us. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We were the ones with the problem. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so Christ's love for us fundamentally at its core involved 
sacrifice, self-sacrifice. Jesus didn't sacrifice someone else. He sacrificed himself. And so it costs himself, right? That's inherent to this definition John's giving us here of love. It was costly to himself. He felt the loss himself, right? And in, 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 in this case, for him, it was the loss of his own earthly life, John reminds us in verse 16. He starts with Jesus, and then he says, that's how we love one another. That's how we love one another. Like I said, this is where it gets specific. Practical Christian love looks like, looks like this. It looks like making sacrifices of ourselves for other people. It, it's costly. Christian love, by, by definition, at the very heart of it, Christian love is costly. And let me say this about that cost. You know, John says we should lay down our lives for one another. But when he says that, that does not necessarily mean we will literally sacrifice our lives. You know, like the soldier who you know, throws himself on a grenade or something like that. Uh, there are occasions when that happens. And I, you know, we've all heard stories, or I could tell you stories about, you know, like a soldier who, who gave his life for, for others, that sort of thing. Um, there, there are times when that is, is, uh, is appropriate, where that is called for, times of war, perhaps times of martyrdom and persecution. More often, though, where most of us live, more often the sacrifice love is called to make falls far short of death, but it's still very costly, and it's repeatable. Right? You can only give your life once for somebody. We as humans can only give our, 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 we can only give our lives once for somebody, but the kind of love John's talking about here is repeatable, and so it's costly in a, in a repeatable way. And so it involves all those things where, where there's a giving of ourselves. It, it might be financial resources. It might, it might be money. We, we think of that one. Uh, but there's so many other ways to, to sacrifice of ourselves for others. It might be time, right? giving our time to help somebody else, or you know, giving up your day off or your, your weekend to help somebody with something. Uh, it, it might be a, a sacrifice we make in our career, Maybe, you know, maybe a parent does that for, for, for their family, or, or maybe you even do that you know, to be able to make more time for, for ministry or more time for something God's called you to do. Uh, that might be a sacrifice. Maybe it's uh, giving up something we want, but somebody else wants it too, and you can't have it both. And so we, we choose, I won't, I won't take that. I will let someone else have that. That's, that would be an act of love. Uh, a lot, of, you know, a lot of parents, like I say, especially moms, you, you sacrifice your goals, your dreams, your desires, what you want for those children. We do it in the church, too. That's, that's what love looks like, according to this passage. It's, it's when we sacrifice something for the sake of other people, like Jesus did, like Jesus did for us. That's what we do for one another. Practical Christian love imitates, it follows Christ's love for us. Uh, practical Christian love, number three, also uh, reassures us when we doubt. It reassures us when we doubt. Now, now, this third one, fact number three here, is a little different from the first two, and it's different because this one is a benefit. And actually, the next one is a benefit too. So number three and number four are both benefits of loving the way we're told to love, of practical Christian love. And uh, I think this is good to remember. Why benefits? Well, it's good because it reminds us that God's commands are for our good. God's commands are for our good. When God tells us to do something like he's doing in this passage, uh, he's not depriving us of something, or he's not burdening us with something. He's blessing us with something. And I think that's why John talks about these next two things. Uh, th this is a blessing, not a burden, the call to love one another. 
He talks about this in verses 19 and 20. So verse 19, I'm going to read 19 and 20 now. He says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So verse 19 starts with, uh, by this, by, the words by this, which is a re- referent, it's going to refer us to something, and I think it refers us back to verse 18. So verse 18 says, love in deed and truth, right? So there's that base command, love in deed and in truth. When we do that, when we love in deed and truth with practical Christian love, he says we know something. We have knowledge of something, and it's actually two somethings he mentions. He says we know we're of the truth, and he's talking there about believing the right things about Jesus, right? So he's connecting us to that. So right, right, right uh, doctrine leads to right praxis, right? The right understanding about Jesus leads to right living. So we know we're of the truth. Connects back to verse 14 as well, that idea that it confirms we're born again. But then he says, look, there's something else that happens when we love one another. Uh, we also reassure our own hearts. What do you mean? You reassure your own hearts, he says there in verse 19. Now, why do we need that? Well, I don't, you know, I puzzled over this a little. Maybe you do on a first or second read through. What is he talking about here? Well, what he's, he's helping us with here is a problem. And here's the problem. They had it then, we have it today. The problem is that sometimes our own hearts condemn us. Our own hearts condemn us. John says so in verse 20. Whenever our hearts condemn us, whenever it happens, it's going to happen. You know, sometimes other people condemn us, sometimes the devil condemns us, but a lot of times we condemn ourselves. We can be our own worst accusers sometimes. Uh, There's a question I get as a pastor, and it's one of the most common questions I get, actually. Uh, I hear it way more than you you would think. The question is, how do I know for certain that I'm saved? I'll I'll get the question from people who've been walking with Jesus for 20, 30 years. How do I know for certain that I'm saved? After all, I'm still pretty sinful. I still struggle with some of the same temptations I used to struggle with. Uh, I still have a hard time forgiving that person who hurt me all those years ago. I still struggle with this particular temptation. I sometimes even wonder if it's an addiction. I struggle with that. I struggle with memories of awful things that were done to me or awful things that I did. I still struggle with all these things. And yet the Bible says that I'm supposed to be free from these things, that I'm supposed to live a victorious Christian life. I'm supposed to have all that. So, so if, I, if I'm not, if I'm still struggling, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know? And the answer I give, I'm, I'm not usually f- as flip as this, but, but the answer I usually give is some version of the fact that you're asking the question shows that you're saved. I really do believe that. The fact that you're asking the question shows that you're saved. Non-believers don't sit around worrying about whether they're saved. They don't. They reject the category. That what's, that's what makes them non-believers. Non-believers are not walking around worrying about the sin they committed against a God they don't believe in. They just don't. A believer wrestling with this is asking this question because he or she is a believer and his or her own heart is condemning. Like I say, the devil might be getting in there with some accusations too, but I think John's really focusing here on on our own tendency to to, to doubt and to accuse ourselves 
and to undermine the grace of God that he's already done for us. When that happens, John says, when your own heart accuses you, do the opposite of what the world's advice is. The world's advice to us these days and probably in every generation in different ways is listen to your heart. Right? You ever heard, hear that? You see it on Instagram? Listen to your heart. John says, good night. Don't do that. Don't listen to your heart. Goodness gracious. Your heart's condemning you. Listen to God. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to God. God, what is he? He builds it up. God is greater than your heart and God knows everything. And God says you belong to him. God says you belong to him. And the proof, circle back to what he was talking about in the previous paragraph, the proof is that you love one another. It's all in that context. You're loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the proof that you belong to him. It shows you're part of the family. Not perfectly. You're like, oh, well, I struggle to let, no, there's like five or six people in the church. I really just don't like them. No, of course, of course, of course. You're not loving perfectly. If you could love people perfectly, you would be God. And if you were God, we wouldn't need him. We would just have you, right? It's not, it's, it's, that's not the point. So no, the standard isn't loving perfectly. The standard is, is that we're trying. The standard is that we care about this. We're trying by his grace to love one another with all the foibles and the frustrations and the struggles and the ways we hurt each other. I was so grateful Larry prayed that way at the beginning of the service. He had no idea where the sermon was going, but he prayed, you know, Lord, help us forgive each other. It's exactly that, exactly that. We're, we're trying, right? So what, that's the point. Don't listen to the doubts. Don't listen to the doubts. Listen to God, he says. It reassures us. We reassure our own hearts when our own hearts condemn us because we love each other. Number four, practical Christian love also emboldens us. Here's the other benefit that John covers. It emboldens us when we pray. And he talks about that in verses 21 and 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, referring back to what he just said, then we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. So since our hearts can't condemn us, we just covered that. Hey, look, we've got confidence, he says. We have confidence to go before God. Uh, God's our father. We're his children, right? I mean, if he's our father, we're his children, which means we can ask him for stuff. That's, I'm, I'm putting it bluntly here, but that's what he's talking about. He's talking about approaching God in prayer. And so because, uh, because God is our Father, we have confidence to petition him, to specifically ask him for stuff. Because that's what children do. Right? We're his children. It's the whole context. We're his children. Children ask for stuff. Every parent in the room knows that, and everyone who's ever been, even been around kids. Uh, they ask for what they need. Uh, they ask for what they want. Sometimes they even ask for things they don't want or need. They just want them because somebody else has got it, right? They just ask for it because Bobby down the street's got it. it. It's just what kids do. And here's the other thing about children. They ask confidently. Here's the boldness part. Children ask confidently. I mean, unless something's wrong, you know, sometimes there's a dysfunction there, but, but if, if things are healthy enough, uh, kids have no problem walking right up to mom or dad and saying, can I have a cookie? Right, can, I, can I sleep over at Katie's house tonight? Can I have a new pair of sneakers? Can I have the keys to the car? Right? I mean, we just, there's no, they'll, they'll ask boldly. They know they may not get the answer they want, but, but they'll just ask. And John says, that's how you need to be. Ask. Ask. Approach your father with confidence, he says. Now, this does not mean we will get everything we ask for. Right? Of course we won't. It doesn't work that way with human parents. 
No, I just bought you a pair of sneakers. They're 150 bucks. We just got them two weeks ago. What do you need another one for? Right? Sometimes the answer is, is no. That's true with human parents. And, and, and it's because human parents are going to do what's best. Right? They have this bigger perspective. They know the family finances. They know everything else. And so human parents are going to, by, the, by God's grace and, and with failures, but human parents are going to set out to do what's best. That's how it works with our heavenly parent. He's going to do what's best. There, there are parameters on the way God answers are asking. Uh, and you say, well, wait a minute. Verse 20, Sue says, I can ask whatever we ask, we receive. Right there, right? Whatever we ask, we receive from him. John's going to come back to that, right? We don't cherry pick our verses. We read scripture in context. John will come back to that in this book. We'll get there in oh, three or four, well, four or five weeks. Uh, in uh, chapter five, chapter five, he will come back to this exact same issue and he'll say it bigger. And he'll tell us there that God's will supersedes our wants. So God's will supersedes the prayers we make. He's going to tell us that in chapter 5, verses, I think it's 13, 14, 15. And so God is not going to give us things that are outside of God's will. So there's a, there's a parameter. And that's for our good. That is for our good. Just like a human parent doesn't want to spoil his children, uh, so does our Heavenly Father not want to spoil us. Right? Is, is God trying to spoil us or is he trying to sanctify us? Scripture says he's out to sanctify us, to make us holy. So, so he's, you know, again, he's not going to spoil us. But here's the thing, right? I have to say that so we rightly understand. But, look, but here's the thing. Look at what John says. John says you should still ask. I, I really think that's the tenor of it. Because he's your father. He's your heavenly father, so ask away. That's what he invites us to do in verses 21 and 22. He's your father, you're his child, so ask. Ask for what you need. You can even ask for what you want. And then trust that he and his goodness will give what is best. He will do what is best. Of course he will. Of course he will. He's your father. And he loves you. So practical Christian love emboldens us because it's this, it, 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 it shows that and it has us living in the life of the family. Because it stands for that and is part of that, it therefore emboldens us when we pray. We get to pray like children. Finally, number five, uh, practical Christian love. One more fact here. Uh, it is an act of obedience. And this is where John's going to land for us. And uh, he's going to take us actually all the way back to where we started. This is uh, partly how I made the decision to preach this text, because there's a little bit of a bookend here. He started with a command, and he's going to end with a command here in verse 24. Uh, or verse 20, 23 and 24. He says, <clears throat> And this is his commandment. Well, again, pointing back, I think, to verse 11, but also back to verse 22. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he's given us. And so verse 22, God answers our prayers because we're his children. We belong to him. We know we belong to him because we keep his commandments. We, we do what pleases him. And just, he, just so we don't lose track of the thread, he reminds us which commandment we're talking about. Uh, it's the same one we looked at in verse 11, the same one we looked at in verse 18. It's the command to love one another. So how does he wrap us up here? He says we should love one another, reminds us again. Why? Well, this time it's because the Father says so. It's a command. The Father says so. And that's how the passage ends. He, he talks about the Holy Spirit, and that's going to set us up for next week's passage, so I'm going to kind of save that part. We'll come back to it as we need to. Uh, but it ends with this reminder that the Father uh, commands us to love one another. We love one another because he commands it. 
And, and if you think about it, it, it's the classic parent thing. Right? It's the classic parent thing. We've all heard it. Lots of us have said it. Uh, why do I have to clean my room? Uh, because I said so. Right? We've, we've, all, we've all heard it. We've all said it. And, and that is part of this too. I think we need to remember that. Sometimes we, we talk about the benefits of obeying God and we have a, a tendency in our therapeutic culture to do that, to talk about how good it is for you and for me if we, if we obey God. But and that's true. It's true. I said it myself a few minutes ago. It's true that we benefit from obeying God, but sometimes we need to remember that obeying God is just the right thing to do, whether we understand it or not, right? Whether we agree with it or not. If, if our loving, all-powerful, all-knowing Heavenly Father tells us to, to do something, uh, we, need to, we need to do it. Even if we don't know the reasons, <laughs> we need to do it. And so practical Christian love is also an act of obedience. I was reading an article the other day uh, about the metaverse. The metaverse. Have you heard this term lately? Metaverse. Uh, I will be honest, I don't understand the metaverse. I'm, I'm still trying to uh, understand exactly what it is they're talking about. But, but the basic idea seems to be that uh, some of the big tech companies are, are building a, a virtual world like a virtual world. I don't know how else to describe it. And I guess it lives out there somewhere on the internet. And pretty soon they tell us, pretty soon they tell us, people are going to start spending lots of time there. People like us are going to start using our Facebook accounts and our different things and whatever, and we're going to start spending lots and lots of time in the metaverse. And I guess it involves virtual reality. So I don't know if you've seen any of these, you know, so you kind of get one of those devices, and I'm sure they want to get past the devices and plant them in our foreheads or something, I don't know, but... But um, you, you get one of these devices that goes over your eyes and you, you get sound and sight and, and you can, you, it's like you're in a different world. And the, 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 the part that kind of makes it, the, the, the new part where they're trying to get to is that people can go there together. And so I'd have one and you'd have one and you, a bunch of us would have one and we'd all kind of sign into the same place and it would be like we were there together even though I'm in my house and you're in your house and we're all, all in different places. So we're, not, we're talking like six, six miles down the road from, from Zoom church you know, where people watch, enjoying joining us on YouTube. We're talking about actually pretending you're, you're in the same place together. That's, I, again, I don't think that's a great description of the metaverse but that's kind of how I, describe, how I understand it. But anyway, the article I was reading was talking about the church. So, Don, why are you sitting around reading stuff like that? Uh, it was about the church. It was an article about how this was going to affect the church. And, and more and more uh, experts are saying that the church is headed that way. Right? That, that's where we're headed. I mean, why do this? Right? Why get in your car and gather in a physical building when you can all just put on one of those, those headsets and gather together in a virtual church? Why not, right? As uh, the pastor of one VR church, <laughs> virtual, real, virtual reality church, I think this is actually the name of his church, uh, his guy was quoted, he said, the future of the church is the metaverse. The future of the church is the metaverse. In the church of 2030, gosh, that's not far, uh, 2030, he said, your main focus is going to be your metaverse campus. I don't usually get into predicting the future. It's always a dangerous thing to do. I might have to eat these words a few years from now, but I don't think I will. I'm going to go on record with this one. They're wrong. It's not going to happen. The future of the church is not the metaverse. And I'm, I'm sure some people will play around with it. I'm sure some churches will kind of dabble with the cool, the cool factor and try to do that sort of thing. But a bunch of people sitting in rooms by themselves wearing headsets 
pretending they're together in a make-believe world is not this. It is not the local church. It will not replace what God founded 2,000 years ago in his son, Jesus Christ, because it's not real. By definition, right? It's, it's virtual. By definition, it's not real. It's not a community. I mean, like I said, I'm sure it's cool. You know, you could probably listen to a sermon that way, and you'd get to look at a cool cartoon avatar of, of whoever, but, uh, but it's not this. It's not a community where we can love one another. It's not a family where we can live out practical Christian love. So here's the bottom line. If you are a child of God, add this one to the list of basic rules you live by. Always brush your teeth. Always carry some cash. And make sure, by God's grace, you love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your help to do this. Uh, Before I ask for help, though, I want to say thank you that you loved us first. John talks about that in verse 16. Uh, You laid down your life for us. We could not love if you did not love us first. We couldn't love you, and we couldn't love each other not with anything that begins to approximate what this passage describes. And so we thank you that we can love because you first loved us, and we would pray that you'd help us to do that. We pray that you would help us to love each other in our our families, our homes, our marriages, in our our, uh, small groups, uh, in our neighborhoods as we live together, in in our community groups, and in our church, Lord. Help us to love one another here in this body. Uh, that the, the world would see that we're different because of that. Whatever else makes us different, may that be one of the things that makes us most different of all. We love one another with the love of Christ. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.